Good morning to you all. It is so good to be able to serve you today and, and to consider together this series on holy habits. And I'm speaking on gratitude. I'm Stephanie. I'm part of the senior leadership team here. And it would be very remiss of me at the outset not to acknowledge with thanks um, my family. Because for me to serve you requires someone to take over, usually in the two weeks before a preach to, uh, but certainly in the last few days, Stephen has done the laundry, the dog walking, the cleaning, the hassling, the, all of the things that need done. And, and for him, I am beyond thankful and he facilitates me to serve you. So see it as a joint endeavor. And, and I guess while I'm on that subject, Olivia, if I tell her my subject, she will send me a blog to read or a really good article. She'll make a much better speaker in time than I will ever be. And the boys, Arthur and Thomas, what can I say? For those of you who know them, they remind me to laugh at myself, to not take myself too seriously, and they keep me humble. And for them, I am so thankful. And if you know them, you will know that that is their main gift, to keep you humble. Okay, so we're, we're doing this series on holy habits and we're looking at the practices that shape us in the way of Jesus. We're doing this series because we believe as a leadership team that we want to start 2018 reinvigorating ourselves with holy habits, with practices that will transform us and discipleship, disciple us in the way of Jesus. They will transform our hearts our minds and our hands. To quote from one of my favorite Christmas specials of Call the Midwife, often the hands of God are to be found at the end of our arms. That is truly profound. And we hope that over these months, as we look at these holy habits, we will start to cultivate practices that will cause us to be the hands of God to the communities and the people around us that will transform our minds and transform our hearts. And that is a journey that I hope we're going to go on. Richard Rohr in this quote that should be behind me, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And so this morning we are inviting you and challenging you to consider gratitude as a way of life as a holy habit and as a way that will transform you into a new way of thinking. And later on, I'm gonna be talking a little bit about what living gratefully actually does to your brain. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has reminded us, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And so we, as the people of God, as the followers of Jesus in this city, we must be always striving and learning and pushing ourselves to become more like Jesus. That is what true discipleship is. These practices, I hope, will help to transform us individually and, and corporately and will change the city in which we live in. This week, as I've prepared for this, I have, I have personally struggled somewhat. Um, someone that I know at the age of 40 has in the last two weeks had a horrific diagnosis and has learned that she probably has several weeks left. And those are the moments that cause you to, to fall to your knees and question and wonder, 
and I cannot make sense of it. It is beyond me. Um, it is truly shocking. And, and how do you prepare for death in a few weeks when you're 40 years old? And I have been left wordless, and that is what I've said. I, I, I don't know what to say. I can only pray for the peace that definitely defies all understanding over this family and this situation. And what it's reminded me, and I guess in this week as I've prepared, is that we have one beautiful life. And the only moment that we're actually guaranteed is the one we're in now. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, or a month's time, or a year's time. So are we, am I, are we going to waste this beautiful, precious day that we have striving and working and worrying and planning for a tomorrow that we may not have. And that is all for now that I can take from what I've learned about this woman, that I will choose to live in a way that is thankful and grateful for today. Because there is no guarantee. We have not got anything that will tell us we will live till 95. We may well do. The Einstein quote, which will come up behind me later, but I want to, to mention it now. One, there are two ways to live this life, this one beautiful life that you have been given. One is to live as if nothing is a miracle, and the other as if everything is a miracle. And that, this week, has reminded me in the most gut-wrenching and heartbreaking of ways that I am going to choose to intentionally live like everything is a miracle. Like every moment, every gift that is around me is a miracle. And I invite you to do the same. So we're on gratitude is a holy habit. It is following the biblical model that is given to us by Jesus. If we think of Jesus the night before his death, he had been betrayed and what did he do? He could have called all the armies of heaven to come and release him. He could have done anything. What did he do? He sat down and he gave thanks and he broke bread. He instituted what we still do today. We give thanks and we remember his sacrifice. And if that is how he modeled to live, then what else can we do but live with thankfulness and gratitude? I want to read this brilliant quote, I believe, from J.R. Miller. Christian thanksgiving is the life of Christ in the heart. It transforms the disposition and the character. Thanksgiving must be wrought into the life as a habit before it can become a fixed and permanent quality. Thanksgiving has attained its rightful place in us only when it is part of all of our days and dominates all of our experiences. He who has learned the thanksgiving lesson has found the secret of a beautiful life. What of us this morning, who of us does not want to live a beautiful life, does not want to live full and free and with gratitude? John Ortberg wrote, has written a brilliant book on, uh, called Soul Keeping, and this is a quote from that book. Gratitude is the ability to experience life as a gift. It liberates us from the prison of self-preoccupation. And self-preoccupation is a prison. 
If I spend my days thinking just about me, it is a prison. Gratitude is the key to unlock those prison doors that sit around you when you are self-obsessed and preoccupied. It helps you, it raises your eyes, it helps you to live in a very different way. Gratitude will never come from us acquiring more things or experiences, but it will come from an awareness of God's presence and his goodness. Richard Rohr reminds us we cannot attain the presence of God. We already have it. What is missing is our awareness of it. As I said, John Ortberg wrote this great book called Soul Keeping, and he talks about the culture that Jesus grew up in, the Jewish culture, and they had what they called 18 benedictions, and they did it at morning, at noon, and at evening. They thanked God, they blessed God for everything. Apparently, when the Jewish rabbis were going around and teaching, the the people who were learning from them would follow them. And there's quite an amusing story, or I found it amusing, where a rabbi went into a bush to to use the bathroom, as it were. And they followed him in because they thought, I want to check what he thanks God for. And he thanked God for his bodily functions and a place to poo. And I thought to myself, wow. There was also a rabbi that taught and said, don't do your benedictions when you're sitting on top of a donkey because you are higher than others and you might consider yourself better. Get on the floor and do your benedictions there. So that is the culture that Jesus lived in. 18 benedictions, three times a day. And I think in our culture, we've moved away from that, blessing God for everything. And I believe that the Celtic spirituality way of life is a beautiful way to pause our days and to be thankful and to punctuate the day and remember what we are thankful for. So I I would invite us, I'm on that journey at the minute, I've got my Celtic prayer book, I've set up my place that that I will read it and punctuate my day and I am hopeful that my mind will be transformed as I discipline myself to do this on a daily basis. They would say that the Lord's Prayer is a summary almost of the 18 benedictions and that that's what Jesus taught us as almost a simple version of the 18 benedictions. But what would your world look like? What would your day look like? What would your week look like if you started to punctuate and thank God, blessed him for every last thing that you were in? It might be worth an experiment. Today I want to draw attention to two passages, one from Samuel and one from Second Chronicles. Two stories that I believe offer us great wisdom and strategy around gratitude in the face of trials and the small and often large battles that we face. And I am aware of some of the battles that people are facing in this room. And they're big battles. They're not easy battles. They're those battles that leave us questioning and wondering and and not making sense. So I don't say this lightly. I'm not preaching a A plus B will equal C. We still have to battle and face things every day. But I'm starting to wonder, is there another way of approaching them? Is there another way that is more Christ-like and more holy that perhaps we can can try and, and discipline ourselves to? I'm naming this preach Raising My Ebenezer. I hope that's behind me, it is. The great, um, the great writer of our generation, or one of the great writers, I am a prolific reader, is Maggie O'Farrell. 
And she wrote, has written a book recently about 17 times that she feels she brushed with death. Uh, and she says this beautiful thing, I believe. She's in her late 50s, early 60s. What I wish I had known at 21, that the things in life which don't go to plan are usually more important and more formative in the long run than those that do. I think there's real wisdom in that. I think that if I look back on my life, it's the things that didn't go the way I thought they would that taught me more, shaped me more, and perhaps called me more to become more like Jesus. Let's firstly look at the story of raising an Ebenezer. So the Israelites were under attack by the Philistines. They were really fearful for their lives, and they went to Samuel the prophet, and they begged him to pray for them. And so I'm going to pick it up at verse 9. And I'm going to read it just from my Bible because I love the feel of my Bible. (laughs) And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. And I've been thinking about that this week, and I've been thinking about the moments in my life that have been my Ebenezer moments. You know those sacred moments where you know that you know that you know that you're in the hands of God. Those moments that defy all rational thinking. Those moments that leave you thankful and humbled and remembering the beauty and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And I am inviting you this week and in the next few weeks to think about what are your Ebenezer moments, those moments where you were facing it and something happened that caused you to remember and to mark the ground, thus far the Lord has helped me. And I think in our culture today, we've lost the oral tradition of storytelling and sitting around the table and talking with one another. And I'm wondering as a community, can we begin to share our Ebenezer moments? Because when I'm facing hardship, if I can't remember my own, perhaps one of your Ebenezer moments can remind me of the faithfulness of God. And I am encouraging us in our city groups or however we meet and do relationships in this community that we begin to share those moments where God was faithful and we could see him and we know that he was with us. I have beautiful stones for you all as a very physical Ebenezer I want you to take home, but we'll come to that later. The second passage that I want to kind of draw our attention to is um, about Jehoshaphat, and it's from Second Chronicles, verse 20. So I'll, I'll give you what was happening before that. So Jehoshaphat was a king, a very powerful man. He had a very wrongful alliance with King Ahab, who was not a godly man. But the grace of God broke in, and he worked hard to seek God, to seek his face, and he brought spiritual reform to his kingdom. And so at the point where things were really going very well, 
People were behaving as they should. They were being godly. They were blessing. <clears throat> Sorry, I need a drink. Word came to Jehoshaphat. So things are good. He's wrought change in the nation on a spiritual level. Things are going well. And word came to him that there was an enemy coalition of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Sinai, and they were on their way. And Jehoshaphat realized that he and his kingdom were about to be taken out. (coughs) Excuse me. What do you do when you're a king in charge of a kingdom and you have so many armies, you have it all at your disposal? What does he do? He calls the nation to pray and fast. He stands before them. You can read it all in the earlier parts of Second Chronicles 20. He stands before them. He admits his vulnerability. He admits that he does not know what to do. And he calls them to pray and fast. And the people go to the temple and they pray and they fast and they wait on God. And a prophet comes and he tells them as a prophecy that God is going to save them. So they pray, they fast, and they wait. The prophecy comes, and they go confidently into the battle. Let me just pick up the story in Second Chronicles then. I'm going to go from 18 to 24. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. He recognized his vulnerability. He recognized his weakness. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. (coughs) So they rose up early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. They went into a battle that it was almost guaranteed they would lose. And what did they do? They sent a choir at the front. They sent a choir to sing the praises of Jesus. That seems crazy. But they were the people, they had sought the face of God, they had got the prophecy, and they were determined that this was the strategy. We will go into this battle, and what will we do? We will sing, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise the Lord set ambushes among the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead bodies fallen on the earth, No one had escaped. And I am proposing this morning that that is a spiritual warfare style of dealing with a battle. 
that that is how we face our battles, the small and the large. We start on our faces before the king. We start by acknowledging our vulnerability, and then we praise him for who he is. And when those, that choir went out and sang the praises of Jesus, the Lord acted and the ambushes came, and there wasn't a one left standing. Incredible. And so I am reminding us as a family today that when we are facing our battles, perhaps that is a strategy that we take. When we can't think of what we can praise God for, we praise him for who he is. When we look around and just are struck by the horror that we are facing and we can't think what we're thankful for, we thank him for who he is because he and his mercy will endure forever will endure forever. That quote is there again. There are only two ways to live your life. One is if nothing is a miracle, and the other is if everything is a miracle. If we think of the New Testament, and we think of the teaching of that, the Hebrew word for give thanks was used 67 times. 67 times. So there's a lesson there. There's something to pay attention to. We are to praise him and bless him continually. His praise is to be continually on our mouths. The Psalms are full of lament, but they're also full of thankfulness. And when Paul writes to the church at Colossians, he reminds them because he sees that they're starting to get prideful. They're starting to live dependent on themselves. They're starting to celebrate who they are and what they're about. And he reminds them to go back to the basis of authentic Christianity, which is to spend your days in gratitude to your king, to spend your days being thankful to the one who has saved you. I want to just briefly talk. So it's a kind of no-brainer. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the story of God teaches us to live thankful, teaches us to live in gratitude. And, and as you know, I work in mental health and I am kind of obsessed and fascinated by all that has been, that we're learning now about the brain and how we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And in the last 20 years, there's been a whole raft of, of research called flourishing psychology. And, and what it looks at, and you can read about it on the internet, or as my mum calls it, the Google. You can go onto the Google and read all about it. And flourishing psychology is how to rewire the brain and to live a full and happier life. And the scientific basis of it all is gratitude, living thankfully. I work with teenagers and they come to us because they're struggling with their mental health. And one of the things we generally get them to do is to start to write down what they're thankful for on a daily basis. Three things. Sometimes we can only start with one because that's all they've got. And we get them on a daily basis to start to rewire their brains. And we get them to pay attention to, yes, your mood is poor, but sit with it. Don't act on it. Sit with it, wait, try gratitude, work with us, medication, whatever we decide to do, and stay with us, and we will help you to recover and to live a fuller and a happier life. I also, to be honest, remind teenagers that happiness is a momentary thing. (laughs) 
I can feel happy now, and 10 minutes later, I can be quite something different. That's okay, but don't, don't make your identity based on your level of happiness. So we talk about a gratitude journal. We talk about how we want you to start living gratefully and living with thanks, and that that will actually rewire your brain. They've showed that taking a five-minute gratitude journal will increase your health and well-being by 25%. 25%. So, wherever you are today, if you want to scientifically be happier in two weeks' time, you start by living with gratitude. You start by writing your journal. You start by naming the things that you are thankful for, the gifts that you live every single day. When we're grateful as a society, we're not fearful. And we're not fearful, we are not violent. So if we want to start a non-violent revolution in our communities, in our society, we have to model an attitude of thanksgiving and of gratitude. We would all know from personal experience that our personal relationships are better if we live thankful. If I remind Stephen how thankful I am for him, things go better and vice versa. It's not rocket science. It is not rocket science. I also want to just tell you what actually happens in your brain. There was a fantastic piece of research done by a guy called Todd Gashton, and he talks about the science of happiness. He's a big writer, a prolific writer in the psychology movement on the science of, of positivity. And in 2009, they got the National Institute of Health to do MRI scans on people's brains. And what it showed was that when people were feeling and talking about things they were thankful for, different parts of their brain lit up. And what happened was they had increased levels of activity in the hypothalamus, and it controls all our essential functions of the body, eating, drinking, sleeping. It had a huge positive impact on their metabolism and their level of stress. It also showed that there was an increased direction of blood flow to the regions associated with dopamine. Dopamine is the feel-good factor. And the brain, in so many ways, is very complex, but is also very simple. And so there's this thing called the virtuous cycle. And so when your brain feels good, when you feel good, you do the thing more that got you that feeling. And so starting to live gratefully whilst it will be a discipline at first, your brain will start to crave you doing more of it. And so this beautiful cycle comes that as you live thankfully, you become more thankful. Why not try it and see? Your brain will literally revive itself and rewire itself, and that's how it develops this beautiful, virtuous cycle. There's something else that they showed, and I speak to all the males in the room. I'm hoping that the males that are being brought up now will probably not suffer in this way, but there was an idea that the men of a certain age will, will not maybe go to, it, think about your childhood, but men culturally were brought up to say thank you was somehow a little bit weak, was somehow put you in debt to the other. And what they showed in this research was that men were missing out on the impact of gratitude because they somehow felt that it's not really a manly thing to do to say thanks. So perhaps men of Redeemer, maybe you're not those men. Hopefully you're not those men. But why not start to live with gratitude and get the benefits of what us women are getting more often, perhaps? 
So it's just a sort of a little heads up. I want to talk to you about a story from the end of the Second World War, a story from Auschwitz. And it's a story that I have found very moving this week and it has helped me and, and got me thinking. I don't know if any of you have heard of Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Franciscan priest. He was 46 when he was captured and was put into Auschwitz. And there was another Polish army sergeant who was 41, and his name was Francis, Franciszek Kajunacek, and I'm going to call him Francis from now on. Uh, otherwise, we'll just trip up on my very poor Polish. Um. So these two men were in. The stories that are told about Maximilian was that he spent his days in Auschwitz going around and saying to people, I am a Catholic priest, how can I serve you? When there was queues for food, even though he might have been starving, he let others go ahead of him. He became known as the Christ of Auschwitz. And if there was a queue for the doctor, no matter what was ailing him, he let others go ahead. He lived a life that was of service. And what he said was, let us remember that love lives through sacrifice and is nourished by giving. Without sacrifice, there is no love. And about a month before the Second World War ended, another prisoner escaped. And what, the ha what happened after a prisoner was noted to escape was that 10 men were sent to starve to death as punishment. It was a very strong message, do not escape. And so there's a very powerful story of how they were lined up and the numbers were called out. And the last number was called out of Francis. And he fell to his knees and he said, please, please spare me. I have a wife, I have children. Please, please spare me. And from behind him, Maximilian, whose number was not called out, he stood up and he said, I am an old man. He was 46. I am an old man. I do not have children. Let me go. Let me go. And in the whole of the history of the two world wars, it was the only time that someone volunteered to die for someone else. And incredibly, they accepted it. And they sent him into a cage with the nine other men. Over the next 12 days, Maximilian Colby sang hymns of praise. He was the last one to die. All the other men starved before him. And on the, la on the 12th day, because they needed the, t the cage where they were for other prisoners, they went in to give him a lethal injection. And he continued to sing the praises of Jesus and put his hand out and accepted the, the injection. Hmm. He wrote a letter to his mum a month before. My dear mama, he's in Auschwitz. My dear mama, at the end of the month of May, I was transferred to the camp at Auschwitz. Everything is well in my regard. Be tranquil about me and my health. The good God is everywhere and provides for everything with love. He wrote that from Auschwitz. The good God is everywhere and provides for everything with love. Wow. 
He sang for those 12 days, facing his absolute certain death, and he gave of his life for someone else. Francis lived until he was 93, and he spent his life, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I want to express thanks for the gift of life. Because of Maximilian Colby, every breath that I take, everything that I do, Every single moment is to me like a gift. And I started to think about that that this week. And we don't often talk about the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior. That's not normally what we talk about these days, but that is the biblical truth and the reality. And we had someone who went to the cross and gave of his life for us and we are in relationship, and we have eternal life because of him. That is the truth of the gospel. And Francis knew he spent the rest of his life telling people about Maximilian Colby and being thankful for every last breath. And I wonder this morning, as those who come to the table so thankful and so aware of our need, for a savior, do we live in the same way? Do we spend our lives thankful for every breath because of the one who gave himself for us? That is what I want us to think about as we now come to the table. We who are sinners in need of a savior and have a savior, do we spend our days grateful for every breath that he gives us, not knowing what tomorrow is or what tomorrow may bring? I want to end with this beautiful quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel, a prolific writer who wrote, writes a lot about Jewish culture. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And he has written some beautiful things called the Theology of Radical Amazement. It's the joining of gratitude and of wonder. And he tells us that is how we are to live. And that is what I believe is the invitation for us today to begin to live in radical amazement and in wonder. As we come to prepare for the table, I'd like to invite the band to come and... um, I, I want to end with a story. You know, I always like my stories. And um, it's about thankfulness. And uh, when our children were small, we were thankful that there was good kids' work available to them. And that thankfulness caused us, it became emotion. It became a, a thing that we did. And we started to volunteer. I volunteered a bit Stephen stopped volunteering in kids' work five years ago, and we counted up that by the time he stopped volunteering in kids' work, he had clocked up 16 years. So his thankfulness and his gratitude for kids' work caused him to do something. And so for 16 years of his life, he, um, he volunteered in kids' work. In fact, our children at one point went to a youth club in the church on down the street from us in Lisburn, and they, Stephen heard that they were short of leaders. So for three winters on a Thursday night, he volunteered with all the rugrats of the day at the youth club in Lisburn um, because he lived thankful.
and his thankfulness caused him to do something for a very long time. And at a time in CFC when they were struggling with kids leaders, they asked him to speak and to summarize why he worked with kids. And he got up and he said, it's very simple for me. When I go to heaven, there's three people I want to say thank you for. Two, Billy Graham, Tony Campolo, and Billy Bristow. So you'll all have heard of Billy Graham, you'll all have heard of Tony Campolo, but Billy Bristow was my Sunday school teacher, and he faithfully taught me the ways of God. And because of him, I will be in heaven, and I want to say thank you to him. And he said, it's simple, I want my children to know that the caring for them, the teaching them, and the loving them is not just the domain of women, that men need to be there too. And so for 16 years, he served faithfully. And he said, I do it because I want to be Billy Bristow in some other kid's life. So needless to say, Kids Club were not short of leaders after that. That would have taken tears out of a stone in my view. And I remember saying to him, I really hope one day we meet Billy Bristow because I'd like him to know what you said about him. And so uh, as life went on uh, and being from Portland, we, were, we met him at a wake. And so I went to Billy and I told him what Stephen said. And once we got over, because we're men in Portland Own, so once we got over the slight awkwardness of me talking emotionally about what Stephen had said, he was very moved. <laughs> he was very moved. And Stephen got to say thanks long before heaven. And I've been thinking about people in this room. There's someone in this room today, and a social worker took a risk 20 years ago and told them about Jesus. A social worker took a professional risk and told them about Jesus and has changed a generation and the generations to come. That woman deserves thanks. God bless her. And so this morning as we come to the table, I want you to come mindful of your need of a savior and the fact that you have one. And I invite you to come and take a physical stone, an Ebenezer, and take it home, take one for every household, and set it up somewhere that on the days when you're facing your battles, you look and you remember your Ebenezer moments. You remember the days when God helped you and knowing that he will help you again. So I want you to take a stone and raise your Ebenezer. And I also invite you to take a postcard. And this week, write to your Billy Bristow. This week, write to the person who spurs you on. They may be someone in your life now. They may be someone from your life from years ago. But let's take the time as a community, as a follower of Jesus, who live gratefully, and write to your Billy Bristow, whoever they are, and bless them, and thank them, and live in gratitude for them. So let's stand as we sing. Please come to the table and lift these things and let's come and let's start a revolution of gratitude in this city and in this community.